Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. Good morning. Uh, it's great to be able to join you guys in worship today and to be back here at Harvest. Um, it uh, doesn't feel like visiting a strange church or anything, but uh, whenever we come here, we recognize lots of faces, and uh, even from quite long ago. And every time we do come here, though, we do also see lots of new faces as well. So it's exciting to hear, just to even sit in through your service and see some of the things that God's been doing here and some of the activities uh, that you guys are a part of. And so as we come here and, and present to you um, what God has been doing through us uh, and around us there in Kenya, uh, we want to share with you probably about a 20-minute presentation and give you a bit of an update, particularly focusing on what's been going on in the last couple of years since the last time we came back here, which was in 2006. Now, um, we know that there are some of you who have not uh, ever seen us before and maybe don't know anything about our work there. So just for a couple minutes, we'll um, try to get you up to speed as to what we're doing out there. And then the remainder of the time, we'll focus on some of the more recent developments. And then, <clears throat> and then for the second half of our time, I'll um, transition into a, just a, a brief, uh, more of a, almost like a devotional message uh, based on some of the things that God's been teaching me personally uh, in our work there in Kenya. <clears throat> uh, we are a family of seven. Uh, it's Betty is my wife there in the middle, you can see. And uh, we have three daughters and two sons. Our eldest, Joy, uh, is 12 years old. And then they're all about two years down from there, Noel, uh, and then Bethany, our three daughters. And then you can see Luke and uh, Judah there at the bottom. Um, we work in an area called Kapsawar, which is in uh, Kenya, uh, one of the East African uh, countries on the continent. Um, it is up in the northwest region there, as you can see. And if you can see, Nairobi is down here, the capital. We work about 250 miles northwest of the capital in a very rural area. The area of the town of Kapswar numbers probably about 10,000 people in the greater surrounding region. Um, but as you can see, it's fairly rural. This is the only road, really, that's in the town. And all the shops around there are typically built out of uh, timber. And a few, there are a few brick structures there. Um, the people that live there, the people that we serve are a tribe known as the Marraquet. Uh, they number about 200,000. They live in a very traditional way that they have for centuries. Um, they are in what we could consider a marginalized or underdeveloped region in Kenya. Often your ability to draw funds to your area is based on your political influence. And that's something that the Marraquet have not had a lot of. So... Um, there are no government hospitals until last year. There were no paved roads. Probably about 90, 95% of the district is without electricity or running water. So the vast majority of Marraquet will draw their water from the rivers that are nearby. You can see that kind of the mud wattle houses there with the uh, grass thatch roofs. Um, to the left of the woman there, this Marraquet woman, is the storehouses where they'll put their grain in there, the corn that they grow every year. So it's basically subsistence farming where they'll grow maize and then they'll grind it up every day and make a thick paste out of it called ugali and they'll eat that uh, pretty much as their main staple there. 
Um, right now, I'm going to ask Betty to come up and just share briefly about sort of our home life and what, what it's like being out there. Often I get complaints, particularly from um, the female gender, that my presentation is so cerebral and so focused on uh, the ministry that we don't really get to know what you guys actually uh, like living out there. So to balance myself out a little bit, here's, here's my wife Betty to share a little bit about our home life. Hi, I'm Betty, and it's uh, good to be here with you all today. Um, like, Dr., uh, like Dr. Steve said, we do have five children, and their a- uh, ra- ang- ages range from three until 12. So we've got a preschooler who's actually here because he wouldn't go to Sunday school. And um, our 12-year-old Joy is going to be starting eighth grade in the fall. So we are homeschooling them. Um, and so for me, we've been out there for four years now, so we just completed four years of homeschooling. And it's been a real challenge for me to try and um, organize the different curriculum, and they're in four different grades because Judah's just starting preschool. So for the youngest ones, like, for example, in math, I'm teaching them how to tell time. And then for the oldest ones, I'm teaching them algebra and geometry, which I completely forgot. So one of my favorite things to say is ask Daddy when he gets home. Um, we're also teaching them for English. We're teaching the youngest ones how to differentiate between vowels and consonants. And then for our oldest ones, um, she just finished a research report on water pollution. So it's just been such a wide range that we have. And um, sometimes, like, for example, with Luke one day, I was asking him something about the Civil War. And so I asked him, you know, just very basically asked, when did the Civil War begin? And he looked really blank. And so I was trying to prompt him and tell him, remember, that was the war between the North and South, trying to get him to jog his memory. And he just looked completely confused. And I started getting really frustrated because I felt like it was a reflection on me as a teacher. And so I was really grilling him, and I was getting really aggressive. And he burst into tears. And then finally I realized he's not studying the Civil War That was one of his sisters that was studying it. And so I felt really bad after that. And so I get their curriculum confused, like, who's doing Eastern history? I I just, anyway, but it's been fun, and so we've been enjoying that. So the kids study from 8.30 to 4.30 every day, um, Monday through Friday, and they practice one hour of piano a day. Afterwards, they're free to go outside and play with their friends. We live on a mission base where it's surrounded by um, mission houses like the church staff, their kids live there in the, in the uh, hospital staff. Their kids live there. So basically we know the parents of all the kids that are in the mission base itself where our kids play. And so it's interesting because um, all of the kids in Kenya grew up learning their mother tongue, their mother tribal language, which is Kalinjin in our, in our area. The Marikwet speak Kalinjin. And as they go to school, they learn Swahili and they learn English when they go to school because Swahili is kind of the unifying language. Um, that unites you. So if you meet someone from another tribe and you each speak your own tribal language, if you both know Swahili, you can communicate with one another. So they're learning English in school, and my kids were teaching them Swahili in our home school. And so it's neat how they can kind of play with each other in two different languages. The younger kids, though, like Bethany, the kids that she plays with are not old enough to be learning the English in school, so they're speaking their mother tongue still, which we just completely don't know. And so I often wonder how Bethany plays with them because they, they can't communicate. But as I see her playing, I just, you know, with kids, it's just kind of a universal being able to play with one another. Um, and it's interesting also, when we first moved there, the Kenyan kids had a hard time pronouncing our names, especially Noel, they called her Noel, and Bethany, they had a hard time pronouncing. The only one they could say was Luke, because they call him Luca in Swahili. So they were just calling all our five kids Luca, because that's all they could say. Um, this is going really fast. Okay, another thing that we're doing is we also are hosting many people um, that come to Capsuar every year to visit us. We've got med students coming to visit. We've got church members. We have, um, you know, even relatives. That's Jennifer. I can't 
point, but that's Jennifer sitting towards the front. She's a Pastor Dave and Dr. Steve's cousin from California. She was doing like a world tour around the world. Um, and we also have right behind her in the only white person there is a, her name is Emma. She was a medical student from the UK. And it's been nice for us to have students from all around the world come and visit. We've had students from like, you know, Australia, Hong Kong, Singapore, Canada, and all over the world. And it's been nice just to realize that the world is kind of bigger than just Africa or just America. And um, I remember we were talking about homeschooling that day, and I was explaining to Emma, who's from the UK, that we were teaching our kids, I think it was American Revolutionary War at the time. And she was asking me, what war is that? And I was like, you know, the American Revolutionary War, when America wanted to free itself from Britain. And she's like, oh, that rebellion. And that's how she had learned it in her history book. So it was just interesting to see just if you're from another part of the world, that's what it was called. Um, we also have different, this is the CFC tech team. It was a bunch of five uh, computer guys from, from U of I who came out and just basically spent all-nighters every single night. And um, we do a lot of cooking for these visitors, especially when they're all guys because, um, you know, so. <laughs> um, we're also very privileged, and uh, it's a blessing because we love having teams come out. And I think in the last year we had six different short-term teams come out, and we and we really enjoyed having the team from Harvest come out, um, especially um, Olivia brought her kids out there, and Pastor Dave brought Noah, their cousin, out there. And it was just such a blast just to have them out there, and we're really thankful for that. Um, they did all sorts of ministry, and Dr. Steve will go into this a little bit later. So church ministry and um, also rural ministry, going into the villages and outlying places and doing medical clinics as well as preaching and um, marketplace evangelism and so forth. And so it's been fun for us. Um, you know, when we were in college, Dr. Steve led about, I think, eight or nine different short-term mission teams out to Africa. And now it's interesting. Now the roles are reversed, and here we are now being the hosts um, receiving teams to us. And so it's been a challenge, and I'm learning, like, you know, what are we going to feed them? How are we going to transport them? What about all their luggage and just the logistics of travel? And, and so it's been a good experience for us as well. And so um, as well, we've had teams come out and do manual labor. And so kind of my job is to kind of try and think of what to feed the guys when they're here. And so, you know, there's no, you can't order pizza. <laughs> there's no restaurants. There's no McDonald's. And so, like, when we do do pizza, you know, we make the, the crust with the dough and the yeast, and you got to let it rise. And I think this team, we were feeding them um, bibimbap, and you have to pick all the rocks out of the rice before you can cook it. And so things like that have been um, interesting and challenging for me to learn. And so this is kind of the, a little bit of the family aspect that's going on. And Dr. Steve will now talk about the ministry. The uh, bulk of our ministry is centered around the hospital that's there, uh, which was started in 1933. So it's been around for uh, 75 years. Um, when I first got there, my primary ministry was simply to be a doctor, uh, seeing patients uh, day in and day out. Um, I w- it was just myself with one other Kenyan doctor uh, running this 120-bed hospital. And so it was a challenge from that angle. But in the last couple of years, God has really been blessing our ministry there. And we've been in a bit of an expansion mode. We've been able to increase our staff so that we have two additional Kenyan, I mean, uh, uh, missionary uh, doctors. We also have a couple of uh, Kenyan national doctors as well. So that's freed me to focus primarily as a medical director of the hospital uh, on more administrative issues and how we can improve the ministry. And so that's what I want to focus on, sort of the remaining part of this presentation. This is a project that uh, Harvest was very involved with, and without your church, we would not have been able to actually get it done. Um, we 
as we think about doing mission work, we want to do things in a way that is wiser, that is um, somehow more effective. And I guess what I'm saying is that in the last uh, 25 years or so, we've seen an, an explosion of the church in just about everywhere in the world, uh, interestingly, minus North America and Western Europe. And so as we go to these different countries, we have to acknowledge that there is a sizable church presence in almost everywhere that we can go. Now, there are places like outer Mongolia, uh, you know, we talk about it's particularly the Muslim world, where there isn't much of a church. But for the most part, uh, and almost anywhere else you can go, there is a church presence. And so the questions that we need to ask as we do missions in the 21st century is that as we come and help these people, are we really helping them? Are we by uh, empowering them, enabling them, or are we almost crippling them by the nature of the work we're doing? And I think the danger is that if we, I don't want to use a word that's so crass as this, but if we quote-unquote market missions, always under the sense of, look at these poor helpless people, uh, they cannot do for themselves, so we need to come and do for them. Um, and the danger is if we find ourselves into that kind of cycle, we'll perpetuate this uh, pattern of dependency in which they always will look and say, let the missionary do it for us because we can't do it. And, and we see that mentality very present uh, in Africa where they'll often say, you know, well, we're so weak. We have no money. We have no resources. Um, let, let you, you as missionaries should do that for us. And so one of the areas that we've been working on is how can we make the hospital more sustainable, more independent, not so donor-driven. And one of the ways that we've come up with is to try to draw up some income-generating projects that will help the hospital to be more sustainable financially. And so 2006, uh, there was a uh, fundraising campaign and your church and uh, one other church largely gave pretty much all the money to build uh, this structure. And so this mortuary became our first income generating project for the hospital. It was a huge demand in the community because they have no place to store their dead relatives until the funeral. So they're always scrambling to bury their dead within a few days before the body begins to decay. But by having a modern mortuary facility where we can store, store the dead, uh, this enables them then to uh, prepare properly for a funeral and gather all the relatives and all of that. And so this is right after we got back from the U.S. visit in 2006. We broke ground, and this is the foundation for our new mortuary. Here you can see the walls coming up, the, the brick layers, uh, putting up the walls. This is one of the first of our, our uh, refrigeration units. And so this unit can hold three three dead bodies there and refrigerate them until the time uh, the family comes and picks them up uh, from the funeral. This was the opening day ceremony, and uh, this really demonstrated to us uh, what a great ministry it was to the surrounding community. All these members of parliament and village chiefs, sort of all the who's who in Marikwet came out to really thank the hospital for this service to their people. And there's actually in that way sort of Kenyan society similar to Asian society there tends to be a lot of sort of pomp and circumstance and so in an event like this everyone has to get up and make their own little speech and you kind of get tired of hearing all of them but then this one guy this guy right here with the kind of interesting hat there his name was Schmidt he, he picked he adopted the name of one of these early colonial governors and so interestingly, his name is Schmidt he's 90 years old he gets up there and I like this speech the most. He just said, you know, I was so worried when I die, but now I can die in peace because in a few weeks my body will be right here. And so he's pointing to the place where he put the bodies and everything going. So now I can just die in peace. And he just thanked the hospital and sat back down. 
And so it was a real endorsement for us. The, the hospital mortuary has been running now for about four months. And already I'm hearing that we're beyond our capacity to the first refrigeration unit. So when I go back in August, we'll have to purchase a second unit. Uh, often there, my, the mortician is telling us that there, there's often six bodies or more. So already this mortuary has generated uh, quite a bit of income for the hospital. So we really want to thank you as Harvest uh, for getting behind this project and, and sponsoring uh, us for building this project. Another work that we've been very heavily involved with is HIV-AIDS. Um, before we had begun our work there, there was basically no access to AIDS medications. And so in essence, uh, the diagnosis of being HIV positive was a death sentence. Uh, quite often, the Mariquette refused testing, even if there was a very high clinical suspicion of it, simply because they said, why do I want to know my status and just be depressed for the last few months of my life? I'd rather not get tested at all. Uh, but since that time, God has really been gracious, provided us with a Global Fund grant. Global Fund is the grant that the foundation that uh, Bono from U2 is always pushing. If you, you know those little red iPods? If you buy those little red iPods, uh, some of that money comes to Capsule Our Hospital, so buy lots of them, okay, and uh, pass them around to your friends. But we now have over 200 HIV-positive patients who are receiving antiretroviral drugs uh, through this program. This, I, I put this slide here in particular because, to me, it illustrates the church in action. Um, there was no way that we could fund an HIV project by fundraising within the church. It, it cost hundreds of thousands of dollars for the medicines, testing kits, salaries of the nurses, uh, fuel for the transport. All of these things are ex extremely expensive. And so we depend on huge donor groups like Global Fund or PEPFAR, which is President Bush's plan. Uh, but this is a good example of the church being involved as well, is that this woman was diagnosed to be HIV positive. This picture was taken about three years ago. We strongly recommended her not to breastfeed her child, who was just born at the time. And the reason is because through the breast milk, an HIV positive mother has anywhere from about a 10 to 20% chance of giving the virus to the baby through that breast milk alone. And so the recommendation is not to, unfortunately, in this whole big picture of global health concerns and things like that, there has to be calculations made about whose life we can save and whose life we can't. In all of these programs, none of them will fund infant formula for HIV-positive mothers. It's a calculated loss that is considered acceptable. You know, So unfortunately, that's what's done. But for us, we felt that was not acceptable. This, this child came back to us two years later, and we tested her son was very sick. He had tuberculosis, and he was found to be HIV-positive. Um, and so... Um, this is where we've seen the church come to action, is that uh, we have individual donors and just in the, uh, youth groups and, and other churches just giving us the money. At first, we were just reaching in our own pockets because we just couldn't stand to see these infants being breastfed. And so just from the missionaries' hands, we were just finding $50 a day. I mean, the average income of a woman like her is like 50 cents a day. Uh, one can of formula uh, that la will last that child about two weeks costs around $15 U.S. So, I mean, if you do the math, you can see there's no way a woman like that could afford formula. But just through individual donations by the church, we've been able to offer infant formula for every one of our HIV-positive mothers. And so we, uh, we just are so excited to see the church take part in that way. A couple of areas of expansion that we are focusing on as well in Capsuar is a new nursing school that's coming up. We... <clears throat> believe that we can have an influence for Christ and the kingdom larger than simply the patients that come through our door. And so this uh, ability to train competent Christian nurses who can 
particularly target marginalized, uh, underserved communities is the vision of this nursing school. And so we are partnering with other organizations that will offer scholarships to these nursing students who come from these marginalized areas like Capsuar. Then they will be bonded. They'll sign a contract. And then after they finish their education, they will go to these underserved communities that sponsor them and at least serve for a minimum of five years. And so that's the vision behind this nursing school. What's interesting is that we thought that 100% of the funding was going to be there when we started this project. There was one big donor that was going to underwrite the whole project. And so we were all excited about it. It was going to be a piece of cake. Just as we broke ground, that funding dropped from right under our feet. And so we've been literally building this nursing school one donation at a time. At first, it's a $1.5 million project. So when I thought about it, I said, there's just not a chance in the world this is going to happen. And I think I really lacked faith. But it's been so exciting to see even, um, you know, we've been getting small grants here and there from the government, from Christian organizations. Even I get an email from someone in California who's a friend of a friend of a friend who heard about this nursing school. And, you know, they sent us a $10,000 check. And so it's been literally like that. Once we get $1,000, we buy, you know, 50 bags of cement and we build the next layer of bricks. And so this was in 2006 as we began to build the structure. It's going to be a very beautiful structure with a ring-like uh, architecture with a beautiful courtyard in the center. <clears throat> so this is the main administrative and teaching um, building. There's going to be dormitories that are built and things like that. This just gives you an idea of the sort of quote-unquote value engineering that we've been focusing on because of the shortage of money. And so one of the things we didn't anticipate is how expensive transport was. Uh, the transportation is as much, if not almost double the cost of all the materials we're buying. And so we just bought a bunch of, we, bringing blocks to Capsuar, which is pretty rural, was so expensive that we just bought a bunch of dust, the, the quarry dust that's left after they mine the rocks in the quarry. And so we, that's dirt cheap. So we just bought tons and tons of it. We just mix our own water and cement in these forms that we welded. And they, these guys that do this, they do this eight hours a day. They have enormous biceps. And uh, these guys can crank out like 500 blocks a day uh, doing this. And so their output is pretty amazing. This is another example of our value engineering. This guy's sole job description is nail straightener. So for like eight hours a day, he does nothing but unbend nails on this little uh, little rock there. But you may think, like, that's ridiculous. But we're, we're buying, you know, <clears throat> hundreds and hundreds of dollars of iron nails on a monthly basis. And so even the ability to pull out nails from these wooden forms we use to pour the lintels and things like that has been uh, helpful for us to pinch pennies every way that we can. Here the, the uh, metal trusses are coming up now, the, the steel trusses. And then this was taken just before we left. The iron sheets went up. And so my understanding is that the plastering is done now I, from the emails that I've been getting. We've also completed the plumbing, and now they're working on the electrical and the ceiling. And so, Lord willing, we're hoping to open this school uh, by August of this year. Again, it's a faith step because we're still a bit short of money. Uh, but we've been short of money from the very beginning of the project. So we've been taking applications and hiring teachers, although we have no furniture in the building right now. And it's just an empty shell. This is another example of God's provision for us. The man in the middle there is Dominic Abungu, uh, just an incredibly gifted guy who I think has probably one of the strongest CVs of any nurse in Kenya. He taught at one of the most prestigious nursing schools in Kenya. He was handpicked by Franklin Graham, the son of Billy Graham, to head up his nursing school in Louis, southern Sudan. 
And uh, he had all these job offers available to him. He could have gone to Europe, to the U.S. And yet we, we, we would kind of approach them and said, yeah, well, we want to start a school too. Would you come and be our principal? And uh, he came and actually wanted to see a site visit. So he goes, so show me the school. And we hadn't broken ground yet. So we showed him the field. I go, well, this is where the school is going to be one day. And he just stared at it. And you could see how surprised he was. He was trying to be polite to us. And we, when he left, we said, we're never going to hear from that guy again. And again, he just you know, contacted us and says, I'll come. And so it was just such an uh, affirmation to us of God uh, working among us to really provide for us uh, for the school. Another area of expansion is that we will be uh, hopefully breaking ground this year on a new surgical complex. Um, Dr. Bill Rhodes on the left is our primary surgeon there. He was there for six years and felt convicted by God to get further training in plastic and reconstructive surgery. And so from 2004 to 2006, uh, he was doing that fellowship. And he came back in 2006 and has been continuing to serve as a surgeon there. Uh, Dr. Paul Larson is another medical doctor who joined us on staff uh, as well. And so by Dr. Rhodes being there, there's this potential to really expand our services and particularly focus on this issue of congenital deformations, uh, things like what we call hair lip here or cleft lip, cleft palate, uh, other you know inborn errors that people can be born with limb deformities, a lot of burn victims because every Marroquite has a fire that's sitting there out in the open in the center of their house. And so often kids will fall into the fire and they get horrible burns. Once the burns scar down, they get into what they call these contracture scarring where they get these claw hands or uh, limbs that are no longer usable because of the scarring. And Dr. Rose can perform certain surgeries that could release those scars and allow them to actually have a normal life again. And so <clears throat> the biggest limitation to this vision right now is our uh, building, our theater, um, our, our operating theater is one of the oldest buildings in our uh, compound. And so you can see this dark, dim hallway there. That's our pre-op preparation area. It's also our post-op recovery area. It's also our surgical outpatient clinic, all done in this little corridor here. Um, and so we're hoping to, um, oh, this is another example of God's provision. The doctor on the left is a man by the name of Dr. Ben Wabwiri. Again, here's a Kenyan surgeon. Probably 95% of Kenyan surgeons live in Nairobi. Uh, they all want to live in a big city where there's a good, you know, social life. There's a lot of amenities of urban living. And this guy is just an incredibly gifted doctor. He's being heavily sought after by the Kenyan government to probably play a key role in the Ministry of Health and all that. Again, here we extended it to him an invitation to come to Capsoar. We thought there's no chance he's going to come to a rural site like ours. He's a very strong, devout Christian. He said he prayed about it and felt convicted by God to come to Capsoar. So in October, he's going to join our staff there as a second surgeon. This is the structure that we're hoping to build. Uh, you can't see it too well here because the lines are kind of light, but it's a pretty ambitious project. It's going to be 126 feet long by 50, more than 50 feet wide. Uh, it's going to have two major operating rooms here. It's going to have a pre-op, post-op area, a central sterilization area, a whole section just for the outpatient surgical clinics. And then over here you can see we're also going to try an amb ambitious four-bed uh, intensive care unit as well, so that uh, one of the problems is that often patients die in our hospital uh, simply because they stop breathing. And so we want to provide ventilators there so that we can give them a better chance at life. And so uh, this is another undertaking. It's going to be about a half million dollar project. We've raised already about half the funds for this. Uh, but I'm going to be sort of visiting some places, seeking grants, 
and things like that to complete the other half of this project. So we ask for your prayers. When it's done and operating, this is the potential catchment area of that. This whole northwestern region of Kenya is very marginalized and neglected by the government. And so there's over a million people in that region that have access to almost no hospital-based medical care. The thought of plastic reconstructive surgery is just you know unthinkable. And so this is going to be an amazing ministry. We've already gotten some grants through things like Smile Train and other organizations that will be underwriting a lot of the surgeries that we'll be doing. But the, what needs to come up now is the actual facility so we can begin this work. So we need your prayers for that as well. Um, another outreach here, I better move a little faster here. Another outreach here is to the Kirio Valley, which is, a, again, one of the other aspects of what we're trying to do is use the hospital me- medical ministry to reach out with the gospel to other areas. And so we've been bringing short-term medical teams like the one that was sent by Harvest and City View. We've had about four medical teams go down there to the valley, particularly to a group of people known as the Pocot, uh, which you are seeing pictured here, uh, who have traditionally been a very violent tribe that uh, kills other tribes all in their surrounding borders in order to steal their cattle. And they're largely unreached. But we've been bringing these medical teams to them and seeing, you know, as we're bringing these teams there, uh, we're praying with them, telling them that we're offering them this free medical care in Jesus' name. And we've been really seeing, and at, at first they sort of stared at us like an oddity, like, who are these strange Asians coming down here doing this, this medical stuff? But team after team as we've been doing this, uh, we've been really seeing their hearts opening up. And so then finally this past summer in 2007, we began to bring our first evangelistic teams down there. This is a church from Atlanta, Georgia, and we brought them down there. And I sort of prepped the pastor and said, this is a very hostile area. Uh, don't be surprised if nobody stands up for the altar call. Uh, they've barely even heard the gospel and stuff, but they did this. And I think maybe it was my lack of faith, but when he gave the altar call, we actually saw more than a dozen Pocots stand up and say that they want to accept Jesus Christ. And so these are some of the really first converts that are coming to Christ from this tribe. And we've been getting them plugged in, interestingly, into some Marikwet churches. And so we really um, want to thank you as well for sending that team out. And any of you who may have been members of that team doing that medical work, this is, in essence, the fruit of that medical work that you did uh, about a year ago or more, is seeing people coming to Christ through that uh, care that you gave these Pocot people. Another way that we're trying to bring about uh, more presence of the church in the ministry we're doing in the hospital is an example is the circumcision camp. All Marikwet boys get circumcised between around age 10 to 18. Uh, they're taken into the forest by these men. They're all circumcised. Uh, they stay there for about a month. No women are allowed. No outsiders are allowed. No one really knows what happens up there, but we hear horror stories of some of the things they got. They bring in lots of homemade uh, alcohol. Uh, this is the boys' introduction to alcohol. And I would say 60, 70% of Marikwet men are alcoholics. And this is where they get introduced to it. They say, if you're a real man, you'll drink alcohol. They're taught all kinds of horrible things, like to be a man means to beat your wife because you have to show her who's boss. It means you sleep and impregnate as many young girls as you can. Uh, and so that's why there's 80, 85% sexual activity among the high schoolers. So for several years, we've already been offering circumcision simply as a medical necessity to avoid the infections that we see all the time from the uh, forest procedures done. But what we thought was, let's bring the church into this. Let's ask pastors, the local pastors, the seminary students, to teach these boys an alternative to the kind of worldview they're giving about what it means to be a man. And so then we took them, and now we all circumcise them all on the first day, and then we, we give them a second day to rest, 
and heal. And then starting third day to fifth day, we have like eight hours of seminars in which we're teaching them about what it means to be a godly man. We teach them about sexual purity, about peer pressure. We teach them about marital fidelity, uh, about all these uh, things uh, about servant leadership in the family. We thought that this was all going to be church members that would send their children. But as we uh, surveyed the kids that came, we found three quarters of them came from non-Christian families, and yet their parents still sent them. And at the end of these four camps, uh, over a hundred of these young boys made a decision to follow Christ uh, for the first time. And so again, this has been exciting for us to see the church come alongside the hospital now and help out. This is Elkanah, <clears throat> who is teaching there, who's uh, just a wonderful um, seminary student right now. This is on their graduation day, as they're all uh, graduating there. Um, and then also we've been doing this pastor's training. Because of time, I'm going to sort of skip over this. Uh, just to say briefly, as you many of you may know as well, that in December of 2007, Kenya had its general election, which is held every five years to elect a new president. President Mike Kibaki there on the left side, there was the incumbent president from the dominant tribe in Kenya. They are called the Kikuyu. On the right side was the opposition leader, Raila Odinga. The early poll results were saying that there was going to be a landslide victory for Raila Odinga. Suddenly there was media silence. And then the day when the results should have been announced, nothing. There was silence again. And then finally, when the results were announced, it was said that Kibaki had won by a narrow margin. Well, rioting broke out in the streets. There was widespread perception that this was a rigged election that eventually exploded into beyond just election issues into frank uh, ethnic violence and cleansing. There were many tribes very resentful of the Kikuyu that were perceived to be uh, unfairly taking advantage of all the government, uh, political, economic uh, opportunities in the country. And so they began to go into these Kikuyu villages with machetes and bows and arrows and basically just exterminate everyone they saw, men, women, children. We saw horrible pictures of even grandmothers and grandfathers being butchered alive. Uh, eventually the Kikuyu organized themselves and they began to attack. We were from the Rift Valley region, which was the hotbed of all of this violence because it's an intersection where the Kikuyu and these non-Kikuyu tribes are living side by side. Uh, we didn't think the violence could spill over into Kapsawar because we were so rural, but because there were these Kikuyu there, violence broke out. Mobs of five, uh, three, five thousand were gathering even right outside the hospital gates. And then we began to hear gunfire. And what happened, we found out, was that the chief of police in Kapsawar, we didn't know it, but he was Kikuyu. And so these mobs were coming demanding that the police hand him over so they could kill him. Uh, obviously, the police couldn't do it, so they began to fire into the crowds. The people began to run into the hospital, thinking that the police would never dare step foot on the hospital grounds. Well, that didn't work, and it, just, it was just crazy. I mean, I'm looking right outside my office window, seeing policemen with uh, AK-47s chasing down you know, rioters uh, with their machine guns and, and you know, people being shot right at the gate of our hospital. Uh, it was a very frightening time for our family. You know, I mean, every time I'm heading to work, Betty's saying, you know, please don't go, please don't go, because it's like right where the, you could hear the gunfire. And I'm saying, you know, I'm the medical director of the hospital. How can I sit here uh, hiding in my house where I have nurses out there in the words, I have to go. And we would keep our children in one of the inner rooms away from the outside windows. We were putting praise music really loud and letting them watch music so that they couldn't hear all the gunfire that was going on outside. And so this was what, really what it was like. And we really thank you for your prayers uh, during that time uh, that God brought us through all of that okay. 
A few days after the violence subsided, I had a chance to go out and see what was going on there. And this is one of the impromptu roadblocks that were up everywhere. On this about 10-mile stretch of road, there were more than three dozen of these roadblocks set up by these vigilante groups. They were basically taking felled trees and big rocks and blocking the way so vehicles couldn't go. They were carding everyone, checking everyone's national ID card. If you had the wrong ethnicity on the card, they actually dragged you out of the vehicle and cut you down with machetes uh, right there. And so it was horrific. Uh, the, the dozens of people that were being killed right outside Capsuar. Capsuar is just located right here. And this, these are the uh, roadblocks that you could see right there. As I drove to Eldoret, again, which was one of the big hotbeds of the ethnic violence, you could see um, just vehicles like this strewn all over the roadside. It was just horrible. The, you can only imagine what happened to the owners of these vehicles. That these cars were just uh, burnt to the ground. And here you can see the shops and the homes were burnt down as well of the Kikuyu people. Okay? And so we really need prayer for the country of Kenya because it is, although there is peace, there is a coalition government, uh, I, I don't think anyone feels like it's far from over. And so this is our prayer uh, for Kenya, is that the church needs to rise up and really be the church in the midst of this struggle and be peacemakers and ones who can talk about forgiveness uh, and loving your enemy unlike uh, anyone else, okay? Now, I know my time's just about up, so let me just wrap with one brief thought then. If I could, if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Second Corinthians chapter 12, and I think I'll just basically share one point out of this, and I'll wrap up here. Um, it says in Second Corinthians 12, verse 7 to 10, and just for time's sake, I'm just going to read it here. It says, To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. The three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know, this past year uh, being in Kenya, I think in the first couple years of being in Kapsawar, there was a lot of successes. I was sort of in, I guess, what we could call world-conquering mode, in which it just seemed like there was no limit to what we could do in that place and how God was blessing us. And then suddenly in the last year, things sort of took a turn. And it all began around summer of last year when it began to develop some health problems. Uh, I began to have difficulty breathing, um, and I was suffering from this profound fatigue. I didn't know what was going on. Uh, I went down to Nairobi and got a, a bunch of blood testing done, got all this uh, heart tests, lung t breathing tests. Uh, some of it was coming back abnormal. Others were coming back positive. Um, no one was really sure what was going on. No, none of the doctors in Nairobi could give me a clear diagnosis. And uh, it was in the midst of a lot of work that needed to get done. And here I was struggling with this fatigue, uh, with these breathing difficulties, and I was just so angry with myself. Uh, also, on top of that, there was all other financial issues that were going on, uh, even as I told you that funding with the nursing school and struggling with just trying to get every little bit of money we could. Uh, in the midst of a pretty ambitious expansion into our infrastructure of our hospital, we were developing a whole new human resources department. We were writing up our whole new policies and procedures manual. And there was this Kenyan administrator that was absolutely key to that work. And just as he was, just as we were going to embark on that work, uh, he had fallen to a moral, um, he, to a, um, a moral failure, and we had to suspend him. He was under church discipline. 
And then the civil war breaks out, and everything came to a shut uh, shut down. All of our workers on our construction sites were Kikuyu, and they ran for their lives. Uh, for about two months, we couldn't get any work done. Donors were writing us saying, "We want to know the progress of the, you know, the money we've gave you, given you." And all we could kept writing back is, "We've done nothing. We've done nothing." Uh, the country's in civil war. Um, and I, I think, in the midst of all of that, one of the things that I realized about myself was, um, you know, how much I hate weakness, and how much it bothers me in myself uh, and in others. Um, it seems to me that weakness is a distraction, a hindrance to what God wants to accomplish in my life. But as I look at this, these words of Paul to the Corinthian church, he had a very different view on weakness. In fact, what he said was weakness is absolutely necessary in our lives to teach us about the way in which God is building his kingdom. And I think what, what it is is that God brings weakness into our life to teach us how to be humble. Because even as Paul says, God did these things lest I become conceited for all that he was doing in my life. And I think that's the problem is so often when God is using us, when he's blessing, there is the sense in which rather than focusing on God, we focus on ourselves. We focus on the agents that God is using and say, well, look at that church and look at how great it's doing. Well, of course it's doing well. Look at their senior pastor. Look at how gifted he is in speaking. Well, look at that praise team. Look at how wonderful their worship is. We tend to explain success in worldly terms, not in Christian terms, not in God's terms. And that's what Paul is saying here as well, I think. is He's saying, lest people look at Paul, the Apostle Paul, and say, look at what a great guy he is. Look at all the things he's accomplishing for the kingdom. God introduced this thorn in my flesh to keep me humble. And... I think that was one of the things that I need to understand is that I am weak. And apart from God, I cannot do anything. But not only humility for humility's sake, but God brings weakness into our life so that as we humble ourselves, we experience his grace in our life. You know, in truth, as much as we would like to say God's grace is sufficient for me, I think we wrap our sense of selfhood, our self-identity, our sense of worth in our accomplishments in our careers, in our family, in these things that give us a feeling that life is worthwhile, that I am a valuable contributor in my society, in my church, in my life. And when those things are not going well, when those markers are not present, I think even as Christians, we struggle a lot more than we really are willing to admit. And that's one of the things that Paul had to learn is as God humbled me, keep me from being conceited, he he confessed God's grace was sufficient for me. And then ultimately, the reason why God brings weakness into our life is so that as we humble ourselves, as we receive God's grace, then as God is building his kingdom and using us, he alone receives glory from that work. And that's the way that God intended it to be. And I think if I could just close with a simple story of Gideon to illustrate that powerfully, I think Gideon was sent to battle. But he lacked faith. And I don't want to get into the details, but I hope most of you sort of know that story of the laying of the fleece. And, you know, often there's been struggles in the church about whether that's a model to follow or not. And I would argue pretty strongly that it is not. In fact, when God laid that fleece before the Lord and said, you know, make it wet and make the ground dry, and then make it ground wet and the the fleece dry and all that, that was actually a demonstration of his faithlessness. He couldn't take God at his word that he was going to be used by him to defeat Israel's army, uh, Israel's enemies. 
And so they go into battle and God needs to teach Gideon a lesson about who it is that will accomplish this victory. And so he says, gather the troops of Israel together, do your best, see what you can do. Now what's interesting is that in most of these Old Testament battles, we're told the odds. We're told how many are in the enemy's side, like a million soldiers, 200,000 chariots, you know, 100,000 you know, archers and things like that. Well, when it talks about these Midianites, It doesn't even try to give us a number. It doesn't quantify. It says, this was a ridiculously large army that was so great they were like locusts in a field. They just covered everywhere you looked. And Gideon is able to round up 30,000 men. 30,000. Horrible odds. But God comes to Gideon and says, I really don't like these odds. You've got too many men to go into battle. You can imagine what was going through Gideon's mind going, too many men? I mean, is God blind or what? So he says, you know what, just tell them, if you don't want to fight, go home. So Gideon just goes to the man and goes, listen, if your heart's not in it, you're afraid, you don't really want to be here, don't worry, there's going to be no repercussions. Just go home. You can imagine the soldier, really? You re- nothing? <laughs> 20,000 put down their spears and went home. I said, forget it, I'm not doing this. This is a suicide mission. Now they're left with 10,000. God comes to Gideon, this is better, we're getting there. But I still don't like these odds. you got too many men. So he's, you know, you know the test. He takes them to a local creek. So it's just watch how they drink. If they slap water like a dog, send them home. If they bring it up, cup it into their hands, those are your men. 300 cup the water. And God says, I like these odds. You're ready for battle. Go kill them. What's interesting is they're never told to pick up their weapons and throw a spear or shoot an arrow. Instead, what he says is, go there and break a lot of pottery. And blow some trumpets. And so that's what they do. They begin to break pottery and they begin to blow trumpets. Now, you know, you, if you try to put a positive spin, because that's military genius. You know, you, you, you're introducing chaos and this noise and it's going to confound the people. And they, yeah, it's good. It's wonderful. Let's be realistic here. We're probably talking about an army of hundreds of thousands of men against 300. It would have played out a lot more like a Monty Python movie, I guarantee you. You know, these guys are breaking pottery, shouting, blowing trumpets. I think the Midianites would have woken up and looked and said, what in the world is that noise? And then they said, are those the Israelites? Those like puny 300 men? And they probably would have said one division. Why don't you just go kill them all so we could get a good night's rest? But that's not what happens. Because the Bible tells us the fear of the Lord entered that camp. And they began to slaughter one another while Israelites watched. And all they had to do is go and clean up the survivors. You know, if those 10,000 or those 30,000 men went to battle that day, I think those men would have had the biggest heads in Israel, don't you? <laughs> that was, it was amazing odds, but we did it. We, we are like the mighty men. You know, we, we did it. But when you got 300, you can't, you, can't, you can't spin that, can you? When you got 300, there's no one will believe that you actually did it. I think those 300 men went home to their wives that night. And they must have been scratching their heads going, you know, honey, the weirdest thing happened today on that battlefield. You won't believe what we saw. And that is the way in which God is building his kingdom. As the Bible says, he takes the weak of the world. He takes the fools, the ones that have nothing to confound those who think they can do something in this world. There are these headliners, the movers and shakers, the Barack Obamas, the Hillary Clintons, you know, all of these people that everyone looks at as the savior of our times. But what God says is, I take the foolish things of the world and I'm doing timeless kingdom work through them. Let us pray.
As I just wrap up in a brief prayer, uh, I just want to invite you to consider your own lives because this has been a very precious lesson that God has been teaching me this last year is that when I think that I am strong, that's when I am perfect for the fall. But when I understand my own weakness, that is when God is strong in me. And I want to just invite you to consider the weakness that you see in yourself. We expend a lot of energy trying to cover that weakness, whether it is relationship problems, health problems. Maybe some of you are still single and it frustrates you. It's embarrassing for you to go out to family events because everyone always asks why you're still single. When are you going to get married? And you say, what's wrong with me? Why can't I find that right person? Maybe it's career stagnation. You went to a good school. You got a good degree. You're just not in the right pay grade. And so always the first thing people ask when you're at a party or a gathering, what do you do? And you're embarrassed to tell people what you do. Uh, I, I, I expect that a lot of us struggle with weakness, of things that we see in ourselves that we're embarrassed of, that we feel we have to hide. And maybe because of those things, we feel God cannot use me. Oh yeah, sure, God can use people like that, but not like me. And one of the things that I think God wants to say to you today is get your eyes off of yourself. Don't limit what God can do by your own limitations and weaknesses. And realize that the logic of God's success is that he takes intentionally the weak in this world to demonstrate that he is strong in their midst. Lord, I just pray for everyone gathered in this place of worship. And whatever things we bring to the table this day of our insecurities, our fears, our struggles, the things that we are embarrassed to talk about with others. Lord, help us to be open about those things, to exult in weakness, and to show this world that you are mighty to save in our midst. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.